That dog had spent its whole life trying to catch that thing. Now it had no idea what to do. Welcome to Decrypted, Ars Technica's podcast devoted to the television that we're obsessed with. Right now, we're watching Westworld. I'm your host, Annalee Newitz. I'm the tech culture editor at Ars Technica. And my guest this week is Lee Hutchinson, Ars Technica's senior technology editor, who's also, let's face it, a bit of a gun nut. So he's going to be talking to us about all of the Easter eggs and the fan theories about this episode. And also, there's going to be some real talk about guns. So let's get started. Thanks so much for joining me, Lee. Absolutely. I've been looking forward to this because I've been I've been watching the show with my wife and we, we both talk for hours afterwards. So this is cool. I got just all kinds of things banked up to talk about. And I know that you're especially interested in reading about fan Easter eggs and stuff like that and like fan theories. And so I'm going to be interrogating you about that shortly. But first, I just want to talk about what the hell happened in last night's episode. It was so interesting. And also, I felt like turned a lot of ideas that I'd already had about the show and the characters on their head, um, which was annoying at first, but then very exciting um, as I thought about it more. A bunch of stuff happened. I want to start by just talking to you a little bit about what the hell is going on in Dolores's head, um, because this is a sort of evolving question, because she's, um, she's been hearing voices in her head. We haven't been sure if they were voices or if they were voiceovers from her conversations with Bernard and Ford. Um, And she's now hallucinating as well. It seems like she started hallucinating. She's not just having memories, but she's actually seeing things that aren't there. So um, one of the, the episode actually starts with her with William and Logan and their sad robot who's led them to Pariah. Um, And she's looking down at Pariah and she hears a voice in her head saying, find me. And she says, show me how. And that's that's the beginning of the episode. So what do you think is going on there? Who's she hearing? What's going on? What's she looking for? So we had the we had the theory of the bicameral mind that Ford so grandiosely brought up a couple of episodes ago. That's right. Uh, And I think that what Dolores is hearing in her head is buried programming from from Arnold, from the mysterious departed park creator who may or may not have gone insane and may or may not have killed himself. I, I think she's hearing latent programming in her head, and I think it ties in with the scene later in the episode after Ford interrogates her in analysis mode, and she sort of, after Ford has left the room, speaks to the empty room saying, He doesn't know. I didn't tell him anything. I think she's hearing Arnold. It's interesting because, I mean, that scene where she's being interrogated by Ford, we learned a lot of stuff. And we also learned that Ford thinks that there's a version of Arnold in her head. I'm sure you remember him. Arnold, the person who created you. She spoke to him on the day he died. um, And he, he said the last thing that Arnold said to her, which she does admit to Ford, is... What was the last thing he said to you? He told me I was going to help him. Help him do what? To destroy this place. Ford says this weird thing, which is, you know, I think Arnold is in there intact inside you beneath all of those updates. And I kept wondering, so in the overthinking mode, 
is is he referring to the idea that maybe Arnold had uploaded himself? Is that too literal, or does he just mean the memories of Arnold are in there, buried, intact, and that if he I think access them, he would see Arnold again? So my my take on that kind of calls back to to Steven Lisberger's visualization of how programs in, in Tron represent the 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 users who wrote them um in fact it has the there's there's the scene in tron with with the old gentleman who plays the program's name is dumont he's the old the old white-haired guy he very explicitly tells dillinger in tron that you can't take the men and women who wrote these programs out of the system our our fingerprints and our personalities linger on every bit of code that we've touched that's sort of a condensed you know brain version of that scene i I don't remember it i think that's what that's what ford is looking for ford is talking about that Arnold's fingerprints and his the the things that he touched as as one of the designers of the park still linger beneath all of the barrier all of the updates that have been sort of piled layer on layer on top of all of the robots like Dolores. I'm really glad that you brought up Tron, the original Tron, of course. Let's let us not yes. skip the other Tron. Um, <laughs> but because I do think that that first of all, it's a very underrated movie in terms of how smart it is and how oh, hell yeah. it was about how computers work and how people interact with computers. But I do think there's a, a truth to that because to, to comparing Tron with Westworld, because Tron is another story about how humans have created a form of life, which they don't fully acknowledge as a kind of life. And then they force that life to play deadly games over and over again for their entertainment. <laughs> True. And, and it's, you know, and in Tron, we don't kind of delve into the full horror of the game part, although we do see all of these players being killed. You know, it's not happening. Yeah. The light cycle game is like a death game. Um, yeah, they're all death games. Yeah. And it's it's actually quite serious. And that's why Tron fights for the users, um, because, right. you know, he's trying to, to save a, an open and free system. Um, I guess uh, a free system, um, free as in free as in free as in speech. So I think that that's good to keep in mind is sort of that idea that yeah, there's these people who made the robots and they maybe linger on somehow inside them. So the other thing that was super interesting to me, well, there's many things interesting about this episode, but one of the things that really struck me was that we finally learned about the economics of the park in a way that we little hadn't bit, yeah. before actually quite a bit um so because we've heard little references to the fact that ford is kind of spending a lot of money on this new narrative the narrative about wyatt but we also hear once the characters get into pariah the town um the debauchery town logan mm-hmm. who's the rich brother-in-law of william uh says you know, the thing I love about Pariah is that it doesn't seem market tested, but they're hemorrhaging cash by doing this kind of thing. And we're considering buying them out. Um, Right. And so suddenly we're thinking, oh, so here's a, so Logan might be buying them out. We also see the man in black talking to Ford about how the man in black 30 years ago bailed out the park. Well, if you're looking for the moral of the story, quite simply ask. (laughs) I need a shovel man I'd be asking died 35 years ago. Almost took this place with him. Almost, but not quite, thanks to me. But we also learn about William's character, too. That scene where Logan and William finally have kind of a, a confrontation. Logan taunts William by saying, basically, oh, you came up from middle management and you think you're so great, but actually, I only like you because you're not a threat. 
I picked you precisely because you will never be a threat to anyone. My sister probably picked you for the same reason. And yet, there's that there's that final look that Logan gives right as the robots are dragging him away, right before they really clock him and knock him out when he asks William for help and William turns his back on him to walk away. There's like this little hint of a smile that Logan gives, like, you know, maybe in spite of all of the vitriol he spewed in the previous scene and all of the the, the putting down he gave William about how small William is and how not a threat he is, when William finally stands up to Logan and says, no, I'm not going to help you and turns his back on him to walk off with Dolores, Logan gives kind of just that little smile, like, Oh, you you grew up. That's so cool. You're embracing your own narrative. And then the robot punches him in the jaw and knocks his stupid self out. Yeah. So maybe maybe he was just kind of a little proud at the end. I definitely think you're right. And he's been very excited to see William kind of getting um, a bit of bloodlust because William also, yeah. when they go to steal the nitroglycerin, just in cold blood, shoots all of the robots um, who are... Uh, the Union soldiers it makes no sense because, um, you know, war is just a mashup of all wars in this park or all sort of frontier skirmishes. So, it's- yeah, they mentioned that specifically. It's like the Texas independence mixed with the Civil War, mixed with the Mexican-American War, mixed with there were like four or five conflicts that the the park AI mentions on the discoverwestworld.com site when you ask about war. So yes, it's a it's a pastiche war. Yeah, it is a it is a pastiche war for sure. And actually, so okay, there's a couple of things we learn about the economy. We also hear <clears throat> the man in black telling Teddy, poor Teddy, he's in very bad shape right now. <laughs> um, after he's infused him with Lawrence's blood, um, he's sort of dragging Teddy around, and at one point says, you know, long ago when I came to the park, I took one of you apart, and you were so beautiful you were made of all different parts and now you're just this flesh and you know the reason that he says to teddy you know the reason that the park did that is because it's cheaper when this place started i opened one of you up once million little perfect pieces and then they changed you made you this sad real mess flesh and bone just like us they said it would improve the park experience but you know why they really did it? It was cheaper. We get the sense that the park has had to switch from tech to bio because um, it's just it's just easier to maintain, I guess. Or well, they have these magical biological three D printers that they can just just you know spit out mm-hmm. biological material of, of potentially of any of any design. We're supposed to just take it as a given that the problems of biological design have been have been solved because you have these, you know, huge bio robots, what what Arthur C. Clarke would call biots running around in the park. You know, they're fully formed. They're they're clearly organic. They have bones and guts and they're they're organic enough that they can play host to MRSA or and other and other, you know, and, and maggots and fly eggs and stuff. And I mean, they're they clearly are biological. And yeah, I mean, if it's a cost saving measure, then it's because they can just, I guess, quickly and we've seen it print out biological 3D material and dunk them in that, you know, big white milk tank or whatever the hell that is. And boom, you've got magically got a robot. Yeah, magical milk tank or, maybe you know, some sort of, yeah, some sort of nanobot tank or something. Right. Like yeah. Android so, goo. So, so now we've had several moments in this episode where we've heard about how they're overspending, but they're also doing cost cutting. And then we meet we, we meet again these two med techs, the ones who were fixing Maeve before when she woke up on the operating table 
Um, yeah. and one of the med techs who we learn at the end is named Felix. Felix uh, is, it seems like he's trying to, it seems like the job that he has is really low paid. Like we get the sense that these are like kind of the McDonald's workers of, of Westworld. And he's right. hacking on a little robotic bird and trying to learn to program it. He's self night schooling. He's trying yeah. to he's trying to get his programming skills up. Yeah, and it's interesting because he's his colleague, who's such a total dick, um, is basically like, you know, I'm going to turn you in for stealing that bird, and like, you're not going to make, you know, you're not going to better yourself by uh, doing that. And so we get this sense of like profound economic anxiety, even though at the same time. We are hearing from the man in black at one point. He says, oh, you know, in the outer world, we've we've solved all these problems. You know, we have plenty of everything. You know why you exist, Eddie? The world out there, the one you'll never see, is one of plenty. The fat, soft teeth people cling to their entire life. Every need taken care of, except one, purpose. There's nothing left to strive for because, you know, the world is just full of all the things that we want. Um, but at the same time, we're seeing this guy, Felix, who, yeah, he's like you said, he's sort of self-teaching himself. He's doing what a lot of pro computer programmers do. You know, it's just finding some code and hacking on it, how to run the system. And that was such a great scene. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Watching Ed Harris, Ed Harris being brilliant and Anthony Hopkins being Anthony Hopkins, watching them face off was absolutely just that was that was a beautiful cherry on top of that episode but so i mean why if if the world is a world of plenty and you know the only thing that someone has to do with themselves is find purpose in their lives why are these two techs so worried about their jobs is is this is this sort of like a like a brave new world kind of place is i mean is, is this a is this a huxleyism clearly there's more going on here than we've seen and I know there's been a lot of effort by fans to try to pinpoint like when in history this takes place. Like, is this like 50 years from now? Is this like a thousand years from now? It's very difficult. Uh, and the the almost, you know, Gene Roddenberry style discussion of how the future lacks all needs and wants makes it a lot more difficult, I think, to pin down in time than it was before this episode. Yeah, it's interesting because the producers have said in interviews that it's about 200 years in the future or 150 okay. years in the future, which, you know, at, they've of course, the producers have also said things like, well, don't really pay any attention to what we're saying. Make your own meanings right. out of it. <laughs> <laughs> so, which I love them for. I think that's really cool. And uh, Jonathan Nolan, who is um, the co-producer with Lisa Joy, he uh, has written a number of films that have, you know, crazy, intricate plots. So, um, you know, he, he knows how to mess with our minds. Okay, so we know that the man in black thinks that this is a world of plenty. We know that the med techs like Felix are terrified of losing their jobs. So obviously it's only a world of plenty for some people, the people who can afford to bail Westworld out with their deep pockets. And I mean, and clearly the man in black is supposed to be like Bill Gates rich. He's supposed to be like not just 1% rich, but like ridiculously rich. Yeah, and he, we actually see there's that one scene where uh, another guest breaks character and says to the man in black, yeah. hey, your foundation saved my sister's life. And the man in black is basically like, fuck off. Like, this is my <laughs> vacation. Don't bring that up. He doesn't just say fuck off. He says, talk to me again and I will slit your fucking throat. Yeah. And he, so he is very much 
engaged in shedding his real world identity. And actually, it's funny because he there's a slight reference to that again in this episode where he's talking to Lawrence about how much he likes Lawrence, even though he's about to slit his throat. And he says to Lawrence, You ever wonder why I've kept you with me this whole journey? You like the pleasure of my company, you sadistic fuck. <laughs> Maybe I do. There's not a man in the world and take the tone with me you do. And I thought that was really interesting because it's part of the reason he's coming to this world is obviously just to meet robots who don't give a crap about who he is and, you know, will will treat him just like a regular bad guy. Well, and Lawrence's loop is, uh, you know, we see it in this episode after Lawrence is, is throat cut, hung and reset is he's I forget the, the name of the mastermind criminal, but he's the dude who's he's one of the dudes who's running pariah. So he's clearly El Lazo. There we go. And so clearly the man in black at some point in the past went and like fully went down the pariah storyline and got all involved with Elazo And I know he talked about some of the stuff that they did in previous episodes when he first met up with Lawrence again. Yeah. But, and this was, I was a little disconnected with this. I, I had a hard time with it until my wife pointed out that it, it actually does fit. Cause I, I was surprised when Lawrence showed up in the episode when El Lazo, you know, sort of looked up from under his hat and it was Lawrence. And I thought, Oh man, they must've like, written a new loop for him or something just like real quick. But when you think back to when we encountered him first, when he was, when he was standing on the gibbet about to be hung, or I guess he was standing on a, on a hand cart <laughs> about to be hung. They talk about how, you know, how, how much of a horrible, gigantic, terrifying criminal he is. And that's why they're hanging him. And it makes sense. They, the, the, those marshals or whoever they were, they had caught Elazo and they were hanging Elazo. It all, yeah. it all hangs together. It does hang together, but okay, this is, it actually, seeing Lawrence in that, in Pariah, really did throw me for a loop, because yeah, that's a really fast repair. I, I mean... Well, they repaired seen, Maeve before and after lunch. That's Well, that's true, although, but that raised another question for me, which was, I wondered if, because we're also seeing Dolores kind of doubling, like we see her see herself in a parade... Um, yes. And that might be hallucination, but it felt might like, be. I mean, or it could be another version of hers walking around in the park. And I kind of wondered if maybe both Maeve and Lawrence in this episode, that there's more than one of them so that when guests, you know, mess up one of the stories, like by cutting their throat and hanging them from a tree, <laughs> they can just pop them back into the story. Um, and so it, I don't know. I mean, purely from a logistics standpoint, it makes total sense. If, if I were running a park, that would that would make sense. There's no reason not to have multiple copies yeah, of, of the robots. Yeah. But uh, as far as whether or not, like dramatically, that's actually what we're seeing. Um, I don't think we have enough information yet to know one way or the other. I think it's still ambiguous. We need we need a few more episodes to know for sure. Yeah, because we've been told in previous episodes that, you know, they have a limited number of robots and so they can't just keep killing them and they can't just deploy a hundred robots into a new narrative because they need the robots to be running the old narratives. So, yeah, so it was very, I, I, you know, I felt like regardless of what's really going on, um, the episode was definitely playing with the theme of doubling and doubles with the robots mm-hmm. and kind of teasing us with the idea that there might be multiple copies, which, as you said, makes total sense. And I think um, thematically is really interesting. All right. Let's talk about war. <laughs> war. The Confederados and the Army of New Virginia. 
So what did you think about the game of war and pariah? Like how did, did clearly, clearly they're talking it up because there was the, the one confederado when they're asking him, Hey, aren't you going to jump into our, to our golden women orgy? And the guy is like, and indulge my flesh has tasted a greater pleasure than any offered here. War. I think it was, I think he just said war. <laughs> I guess that's a, a Virginia accent that you're doing there. I, you know, I don't know. I can do a Texas accent being from here, but I can't. Virginia is a whole other, Virginia is a whole other accent. Yeah. I mean, they're, army, they're the army of New Virginia, but I think, I, I feel like that this whole story is kind of taking place in Texas. So I, I will, I will give you that. And obviously it is taking place in a, in a land out of place. Like it's yeah. supposed to be specifically non, you know, non-placeable. But Sweetwater clearly is supposed to be in the American West. But then once they once they get out of Sweetwater and head to parts south, Pariah is supposed to be, you know, you saw the the note from the producers. Pariah is supposed to be some sort of really screwed up like pastiche of multiple different types of culture. But I think Pariah is supposed to be in Mexico and they do talk about, you know, we're not welcome on the other side of the border or whatever. So maybe it's, you know, they're having a day of the dead parade while they're there. I think it's like every day is day of the dead in Pariah. (laughs) But yeah, it's, I think it's supposed to be sort of in just this, you know, non-placeable Texas-ish, you know, border area that switches back and forth between being in Mexico or fake Texas, like as needed as you sort of go to different locales. So what do you think that this game of war is? So because one of the things that I liked about this episode is that we're starting to see robots on either side of a conflict and the confederados are working, we think initially, we think they're working with Lawrence Elazo. And then Lawrence comes up with this plan that seems like is all about him being part of the rebellion against the Confederados. So what what did you make of that? What the heck is going on there? For us, the viewer, I think a lot of this is it's like communism. It's a red herring. It, but I think communism the, is a red herring. <laughs> it's a quote. It's a quote from Clue, the greatest movie ever. Anyway, okay. I, I don't know if we, the viewers, will ever get the full extent of the war storyline. I think in a lot of ways it provides sort of a MacGuffin set of plot outlines so that Nolan and the rest of the showrunners can throw crazy screwed up events at us, the viewers, and then have it fit in this, oh, well, this crazy thing happened because it's all part of the war narrative. Yeah, we need to go do this because it's part of the war narrative. As I have to admire, though, the way that all of the different ways in which the overarching set of Westworld narratives would have to hang together because... There's got to be two types of guests who ride out to Pariah who get there. And it's, and it's intimated in multiple places, both on the Westworld website, the, the discoverwestworld.com, like fake in-universe website, and also in the show, that you don't just get to go there. You can't just like grab your horse and be like, I'm going to go to Pariah today. Like you have to, there is a process by which you have to get there. And generally it's for guests who have either paid a lot of extra money Uh, And this has kind of got, they get into this a little bit on the website, or it's to guests who have a lot of experience and know how to sniff out the storylines to get there. And they kind of, I mean, William and Logan get there accidentally by finding the Easter egg. They find the Easter egg, right. (laughs) But it's, there's two types of guests who go there, I think. I think that there's the the kind of guests who want to participate in the, you know, absolute no-holds-barred, massive robot orgy that appears to go on every night. You know, eyes-wide-shut-style debauchery happening in every room of this, you know, weird Spanish-looking palace place that the the showrunner said they found that location and it was like a cemetery or an above-ground yeah, like mausoleum or something. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, so there's there's like the guests who just want to do that, and who have who for whom the regular debaucheries in the rest of the park are just not debauched enough. Uh, and then there's probably also the guests who have been through a lot of the regular treasure hunting shooting narratives, and who want instead. And maybe these are the same type of people who who today would be the folks who are going out there participating in the Civil War reenactment type stuff where they want to go and spend a week and like really get immersed into a, you know, deep, gritty. I don't want to say if for Westworld historically accurate, but just sort of a deep simulation kind of thing of of really taking part in something scary mm-hmm. and the um, hardcore, not that, the hardcore gamers, basically. <clears throat> the people yeah, who, I think they are. It's the hardcore gamers, but it's the folks who are also like overpoweringly rich who can afford to go to Robot Fuck Park for, you know, however many weeks it is that you want to do do this during. Right. Yeah. Robot Death Park in the case of the Game of War. But I still want to kind of try to untangle a little bit of what is happening because we, you know, our main characters or two of our characters, William and Dolores, are kind of with Lawrence at the end of the episode. So they're they're going on whatever this weird mission is that, that Lawrence they is are. Going but with the remember also the loaded corpse. Yes, and, but Ford is disrupting the war narrative also. So I think there is the there's the traditional war narrative, which is going to I don't think we're going to see. And it would have played out in any number of ways over a long period of time with sort of some sort of blue versus gray combat and, you know, probably a lot of, and clearly the safeguards are down a little bit in Pariah too, because guests, you know, Logan pulls out his pistol to try to intimidate Elazo's thugs and they take it away from him and punch him in the face, which I love that. Yes. Cause you can tell he hasn't been here before. He's, he's used to Sweetwater where he could, he could do that. And they'd be like, Oh, but in Pariah, he pulls out his gun and they're like, no, punch. Yeah, I definitely thought. And that was the other thing that made me feel like it was for the hardcore gamers. Because it's like, no, we take the safety off here. And, you know, you can be hurt, like really hurt, not just, you know, um, kind of pushed around. But like, right. You know, they could they can punch you out. Face wrecked. I, yeah. I still don't think, you know, I'm sure that, you know, real injury. I don't think they would break limbs. You know, maybe they would punch him unconscious, but maybe not since that's actually really dangerous. You can get a concussion. Yeah. Maybe they maybe the robots can choke you out a little bit to where you start to go. I mean, clearly they can do more. And as they are just beating the snot out of Logan at the end, they can take it pretty far. But uh, yeah, I do like, I like that they've, they've dialed the safety down a little bit. Although as we've seen from numerous episodes of Star Trek, once you start screwing with the safety parameters on the holodeck, that's when everything goes terribly wrong. That's true. That's when you get Barkley just like going nuts. <laughs> uh, I want to know who the, the Barkley is in this story. Uh-huh. I guess it's the man in black um, in a weird way. Okay. My final question about this it, game of war thing is, do you think that Confederados are part of the Wyatt narrative? Because that was definitely the impression that I got because when we do meet the Confederado guy and he starts like rambling about weird religious crap that we know is associated with Wyatt's narrative. The road to glory could use more warriors in its fight for our divine provenance. That is just what we were thinking. Because Wyatt yeah. came back from the frontier with all these weird... Um, you know, ideas where he thinks he's become God and stuff. And the Confederado guy says to Lawrence, There's a place in glory for a brown man who knows his rank. And, um, and, <laughs> yes. and you're like, why is Lawrence teamed up with this like white nationalist dude? Um, because 
<laughs> you know, that's not going to be a yeah. good place for him in the end. Um, and then, of course, we find out he's not. He's actually secretly working against them. So so what do you think? Is there a connection there or is? So it's difficult to say. I, I think we should ex- I think we should expect that. Yes. Ford's narrative with Wyatt, which is new, builds on war. He even explicitly says that it takes place in a time of war a couple episodes ago. <laughs> he draws it out Anthony Hopkins style. But it's also important to note that in the flashbacks, when we see Wyatt and Teddy serving with Wyatt, they are wearing Union uniforms and not Confederate gray. So yeah. uh, I, I don't know. Again, I, I'll have to just say, I don't think we know enough yet. I'm sure we will eventually, but I don't think we know enough yet to say exactly where Wyatt fits in. We do know that the folks who are Wyatt's people at this point are not wearing any kind of formal army uniform. They're running around in skins and bones and bone masks and yeah. are possibly death-crazed, Viking-style unkillable because Teddy was unable to shoot them when they clubbed him to mostly death. So I don't know. I I think the war narrative is tied in with Ford's Wyatt narrative, but I don't, we just don't know enough yet to say how or when, or when Wyatt is going to show up. If the show's done one really good thing here, though, it's that we have at least seen that Wyatt, and I'm glad they did this, honestly, we've seen that Wyatt is a, is a person, and we've seen that Wyatt is not Teddy or some other actor already in the show. They showed a, they showed Wyatt in flashbacks and it's a guy and we haven't outside of the flashbacks. We haven't seen him yet. And I'm glad they did that because otherwise there'd be all kinds of other really dumb theories about who is Wyatt is Wyatt, the man in black, the man in black is Wyatt or something mm-hmm. stupid. Is it because Arnold? Is it like right. Ford's younger self? Is it like, right? Yeah. You know, the aliens who secretly control the asteroid where this, <laughs> where this thing is taking place. And exactly. That's my theory. Um, no, not really. So, Okay. Let's talk about guns. Tell me pew, all pew. of your gun feelings. Uh, so, okay. <laughs> this is complicated. Very complicated. So first off, we know that the guns used by the guests in the park and the guns used by the host, the, the, the in-universe guns, are different from real guns. And we know, based on both a conversation with Nolan, it was an interview with Rotten Tomatoes, and also from the fake Westworld Terms of Service that you can find if you dig around on their website, yeah. that the guns use, Nolan calls them simunitions. So they, they fire ammunition, but they fire some sort of funky ammunition that doesn't hurt people. And the I'm going to quote from the Westworld TOS, it's because it specifically says, quote, gun ammunition contains proprietary safeguards related to bullet velocity and tampering with gun safety features or ammunition automatically transfers liability to you and absolves Delos, Inc. of any injury or death that may occur as a result. So the guns that are being used and the ammunition being used both appear to be special. And the reason why we know this, like on the show that they've shown explicitly, is because you can look at the guns that Stubbs, who is the, the, who is the least Hemsworth, and um, the rest of the security crew have used every time, like in the first episode, they show the they show Stubbs, Bernard and the security crew going down to, you know, sub level 83. Uh, and all of the security crew have these really cool um, FNP 90s, these little submachine guns with bright red lower receivers. Uh, and again, in the episode, uh, episode three, when Stubbs and Elsie go to track down the stray and they're riding together in the elevator up, Stubbs has, um, it looks like a little Beretta PX4 subcompact with a red barrel. 
And so that seems to be the giveaway. The color red on a weapon is, is I think, supposed to indicate very visually to people who are, who are looking and also to us, the audience, that this is a real gun. If you shoot this, it will kill everything, as opposed to the fake, you know, simunition guns. Simunition is, um, we've seen, for example, William gets shot with simunition and he is knocked over. So it hurts. What is that? I mean, it's something to do with velocity of the bullet. First off, getting shot like that in with a real gun wouldn't wouldn't knock you over. That's a that's a Hollywood thing. The, even if you get you know a blasted with a shotgun in the middle of your chest from three feet away, it's not going to knock you over. Guns don't work that way. Um, I think the easiest way to explain that in universe um, is that he was absolutely terrified and <laughs> wasn't expecting to get shot in the first place because right. he thought that he thought that Logan had told him, like, you can't get shot, which is obviously not what happens. Um, I think he, you know, once he felt that, you know, the whatever it is, the little sting or the poke or the tiny explosion of the of the fake ammo exploding on him, and it left a bruise, you know, he pulls his shirt down and he's got a big old welt mm -hmm. right below his collarbone. I think he just sort of possibly just adrenaline freaked out and jumped backwards and fell over. Because we also have seen the man in black get shot Many, many, many times. Yeah. Um, of course, he's had all these years. He's like the pro paintball player where the paintball doesn't hurt him when it hits him anymore. Um, but it certainly <laughs> yeah. certainly doesn't knock him over. But yeah, I, I would imagine that Nolan has said in interviews that it feels like, you know, a sting. Uh, I figure it's probably like getting shot with a little airsoft pellet or a, or a paintball. It, it hurts, but it's it, it doesn't do much more than that. But there's some weirdness around how the bullets work, because in episode two, the man in black fires his little 20 gauge one shot shell from his Lamotte revolver through a through a wall and kills a, a, a host on the other side of the wall. And, you know, we've seen we've seen bullets punch through wood and there's all kinds of like and I know there are tons of people trying to analyze all of the little like twists and turns of how this is possible. Are they using nanotechnology? Are they using blah, blah, blah. I think honestly the answer to this beyond, uh, you know, just sort of hand waving it away is that, you know, if they shot the horses, there'd be no movie. So just sort of accept that that's why they don't shoot the horses in the old cowboys and Indians movies. You just it's the, the bullets act the way they do because dramatically that's how we need them to act to tell the story that we're telling. But we do see, interestingly, when there's an explosion, I love that moment where we see them in the command room saying, all right, there's been a request for a pyrotechnic. Yes. And, oh, know, that was great. That was a really nice sort of tip of the hat to, you know, maybe how a lot of this stuff is working um, under the surface. And of course, with each bullet, you wouldn't necessarily have like a bunch of people sitting around saying like, oh, you know, what are we going to do with this bullet? Um, but maybe, you know, maybe all the bullets have a freaking IP address or something, you know, and every object. Internet of bullets. Yeah, the inner. But it's like the the whole park is addressable in some way. And so if you're going to hit the wall, the bullet talks to the wall and is like, all right, this wall is OK for me to punch through. Um, sure. That's entirely know. possible. I mean, we've we don't know the parameters of the technology and so we can Been do whatever we want. <laughs> The one thing the one thing that I'm absolutely sure of is that the technology, as in Star Trek and as in any other show, the technology will adapt to serve the drama. So if there is a situation where a bullet needs to be able to, like, punch through a wall and shoot somebody on the, on the other side of it because that because it's cool and because it serves the plot, that's what we're going to see happen. Yeah. If there is another scene where we need the bullet to not do that because there's a guest on the other side of it and we need the guest to be saved because that serves the plot of the episode, that's what we're going to see. You know, it's it's going to... It's going to happen how it happens. And we have, and Dolores has this mystery gun. 
and we don't know if it's a real gun. So initially I thought it was going to be a real gun. Like this was, you know, first she killed the fly and next she's got the gun and she's going to kill people. I don't think that's going to, I don't think that's going to be how it happens. I think the gun was the first step in Dolores sort of remembering and breaking out of her damsel narrative, which she explicitly says. I, I think it's an in-universe gun. I don't think it's a, it's a real gun. Um, I think if it were a real gun, it would be marked. It would like some, like the barrel would be red or some part of it would be red and we'd be able to, we'd be able to see that. What we do know is that the gun helped Dolores, the gun coupled with trauma helped Dolores overcome her programmed inability to pull the trigger. And you know what? And I have to say my favorite moment in the entire show, this entire time was the scene in episode three, the same episode where Dolores overcomes her inability to pull the trigger where Stubbs and Elsie come across the camp that the woodcutter ran away from. And there are the rest of the robots are sitting around the campfire with a, there's a rabbit who's been skinned and spitted sitting like uncooked on, on not a campfire. And they're all sitting around like, because only the woodcutter was programmed to be allowed to touch the ax. They're all sitting around in like this broken loop arguing about who should go chop the wood. Like you should go chop the wood. And you know, yeah, I ain't gonna chop the wood. I built the, I pitched the tents and blah, blah, blah. And Elsie, when her and Stubbs walk up, Elsie says, oh yeah, they were due back in town two days ago. And they've been sitting here around this non-lit campfire for like two full days, looping, arguing about who's going to go chop the wood with nobody checking in on them. I, I just, I just love that because it's so computery. It's exactly how it would work. Yeah. And that's what I think is, is great about this show is that there is, there are so many moments like that, that feel very realistic and also give you a sense of what it means when you really have a robot breakdown in a park like this, like it wouldn't just be a robot uprising where all the robots are like, wow, I remember how much you screwed me over and now I'm going to shoot you. It would also be things like that, like robots yes. not being able to function. And like, and that's part of what makes their lives so terrible as robots is that unlike a human who might eventually figure out that they were stuck in a loop, hopefully, um, you know, these guys have no chance of doing that. Um, nope. And so it's it's really it's kind of yeah, I felt sorry for them. Oh, but that reminds me, what the hell with um, the stray? Because we learned in this episode that he's been implanted yeah. with uh, a device that's allowing him to communicate with a satellite. And yes, we saw um, that they're using a GPS system. Um, there's this flash yes. on Elsie's um, handheld device where we see GPS, which I think probably tells us that we're on Earth. Um, I mean, I think that absolutely GPS tells Mars, us we're on Earth. But uh, yeah, I think like for fan theories about where it is, yep, we're on Earth. <laughs> I, I, I agree. I agree that we're on Earth. I, I think that we are. We are absolutely on Earth. We're not in virtual reality. We're not in a computer. We're, we're in some sort of, we're in some place and maybe it's a gigantic island. Maybe it's an artificially created island in the middle of the ocean. You know, maybe it, it certainly would stand to reason that if we live in a world in, in Westworld times where we can 3D print human beings, maybe we can create a, you know, gigantic floating island in the middle of the Pacific Ocean or whatever. Yeah, I, we are on Earth. I don't think we are on an asteroid or on Mars or on the moon or on a terraform planet or inside a computer. But I also don't think that we're somewhere conventional. I don't think the park takes place in, you know, the American South. Like they haven't like cordoned off the state of Utah and like do Westworld there. That's not how it works. Otherwise, there wouldn't be that whole thing about how 
you know, you have to rotate to the park and rotate out of the park and, you know, this and that, whatever. I think that possibly they're simply on, you know, an artificial landmass floating somewhere in the ocean that's just difficult to get to. Yeah, or some kind of, you know, huge version of an oil platform. The other thing is that with the GPS uh, coordinates, that nuked my theory, which was that they were in an underground facility. I mean, part of the facility Ah. was underground. But I thought that maybe yes. the whole thing was underground and that they had this artificial sky. But if they're using GPS, there's just no way that that's the case because it. Well, plus the stray being able to communicate, zap his uh, his yeah. information up to an orbiting satellite, which they explicitly say is what is what he's doing. That also means that they are they're under the they're under the open sky somewhere, at least. Yeah, somewhere. Either that or in the future, you know, all of these signals could pass through many layers of rock. So who knows? <laughs> Maybe radar is the future. (laughs) The one clue we might have here, though, is that Orion is visible. um, And I don't. So you may know this. I I don't know this. And I I will I will happily expose my ignorance here. Is Orion only visible in the northern hemisphere or can you see or is Orion part of the southern hemisphere, too, during certain parts of the year? That is a good question. I think it's mostly a northern hemisphere thing, but I don't know. People can tell us in comments. um, I'm sure they will. I don't know if that's really a hint or not. But we also know that he's not actually looking at Orion. He's he's doing something else. So he's looking at one specific area of Orion. Like the, the satellite is within where Orion's belt sits. Yeah. And that would be another potential thing to do, would be to try to compute the possibility of a geosynchronous orbit where the satellite would sit where Orion's belt is as Orion changes position throughout as the seasons shift. That may be too much of a... No, Maybe. that's a great oh, idea. You could e- easily do that with any number of um, astro programs. Okay, everybody go out and do that. Let's talk about um, fan theories, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Right. I have an ugly one right off the bat. It's been popularized on the official the subreddit, the Westworld subreddit. Uh, and there have been a lot of fans who have posited that we are actually seeing two timelines playing out simultaneously. And that, uh, and that William... Um, uh, you know Jimmy Simpson's character William is the same person as the men in, as the man in black. Like they are they are the same person and and William is 30 years ago man in black, and that we were going to be taken like and the things that William is experiencing on screen like turn the man in black into the man or turn him into the man in black. Right. So this is sort of the um, origin story of the man in black. Right. That, that we're simultaneously seeing the 30 years ago storyline and also the present day storyline of the man in black 30 years later doing, you know, whatever it is that he's doing, trying to solve the maze. I think it's a terrible theory, uh, creative uh, and, and supported by a lot of circumstantial evidence. But this episode finally, uh, and I think fortunately, demolishes the theory firmly by having Logan and William talk about the, the crazy thing that happened 30 years ago and, uh, you know, the death of, of Arnold and all of that. So unfortunately, uh, uh, folks who are a fan of the dual timeline theory and William being the man in black, that's that's over. That's done with. Uh, give it a rest. That theory is departed. That said, <laughs> I think there is we have to at least acknowledge that William's character and the man in black are kind of foils for each other. And they, you know, they are. There, yes. There's definitely it's not like people were picking up on nothing here. Like there's definitely. No, 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 no. But but I, yeah, I, it's not the same dude. So, yeah, shut up. <laughs> They just went a little too far. And the second one is, and I think you're going to disagree with me about this. I think that the show had its nice little fun back in episode one with the very effective Teddy reveal of like, oh my gosh, he's actually a robot. Yeah. I think that was the first and last time we're going to see in the entire show the is he a robot or not 
trope. Um, so to that end, I don't think the man in black is a robot who's gained sentience. And I definitely don't think Bernard is a robot. Now, we do see Ford, Anthony Hopkins' character Ford, have some amount of weird contempt for Bernard. But I think it's less because Bernard might be a robot and more because Ford is basically like a solipsistic sociopath. The showrunners have even more or less confirmed Bernard is human in multiple interviews, including one with Entertainment Weekly from a couple of days ago. And here's here. So ultimately, here's where I'm bringing this. The show, I think, generally is playing it straight with us, the audience. I think it is a 100 percent safe assumption to accept that what it tells us is givens. Like if the show shows us someone as a host, that that person is a host. If the show shows us someone as human it is, I think, safe to accept that that person is human. I think everyone in the control room is human. I don't believe the show is going to devolve into a Cylon hunt because I think that's old and boring. The show is going down so many more, much more rewarding and fascinating paths about you know, the nature of consciousness. It would massively cheapen the show, I think, to turn it back into a stupid who's a robot mystery. Yeah, and I, I have to agree get, that it would We be... get this cool thing. We can focus on robots who can pass the Turing test, but might be choosing to fail it. And that is so much more interesting. I agree. I mean, I think that also a lot of the ethical and moral questions that the show raises get really cheapened if it turns out that everyone is a robot or potentially anyone is is really a human or, you know. Yeah. The point is, this is a show about how humans have invented a new form of life, which is human equivalent, and they've done all kinds of things to prevent that life form from achieving autonomy, from uh, knowing itself by removing their memories. And they've turned they've basically created slaves who are not just physically enslaved, but mentally enslaved. And I think yes. that if you start to say, well, actually, some of the people who did that are really robots. That really robs the story of the kind of moral urgency of what do we do about the fact that we've created these these creatures who are now, you know, horribly traumatized by what we've done to them, uh, you know, because then it, you know, it becomes just like you said, it's just sort of a cheap robot hunt. Um, and, and, you know, that's great for a movie like The Thing. That's the whole point of The Thing is anyone could be The Thing. Um, right. But that's, you know, that's not the story. The thing isn't asking the same questions. And, um, you know, that was a big problem with Battlestar Galactica is that it turned into a kind of robot hunt. And I think that was part yeah. of what kind of wrecked the story for a lot of people, including the people in the writer's room, no doubt. I agree. I hope that's true. I hope it doesn't turn out that Bernard is a robot because I love the idea that he's a human being who sympathizes with the robots, which is such a much more interesting thing for someone to be doing uh, than just the idea that the only one who could sympathize with robots is a robot. It's like, no, humans yes. humans can see why these robots need to be given freedom. Um, it's not it's not a robot thing that you can't understand. It's a it's a human thing too. Um, 100%. Cool. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us and explaining the guns and talking about the fan theories and we'll see everybody next week. You've been listening to Decrypted, Ars Technica's podcast about all the television that we're obsessing about. I'm your host, Annalie Newitz, and I'll be here every week obsessing over Westworld until the season is over. So be here next week and we'll talk some more. <laughs>